Welcome to the podcast where we bring on remarkable people to tell their stories. I'm Paul Gilman. I'm Daniel Lance. And this is Pod So One. Our guest this week is accomplished restaurateur Joe Carroll, the mind behind several Williamsburg, Brooklyn mainstays, including barbecue joint Feta Sao and St. Anselm Steakhouse. In this conversation featuring guest host Katie DeConing, we hear from Joe on his pivot from a music career to the restaurant world and on the creativity with which he approached restaurant concepts, which has now resulted in an impressive empire that now spans cities and states. Joe also reflected on how he handles setbacks and failures. He discussed a new normal with COVID-19 in the restaurant industry, and he even had some thoughts on the future of meat. So here's Joe. Growing up in Dumont, where is, that's North Jersey? It is. It's in Bergen County. It's, uh, I don't know, roughly 10 or so miles north of the GW, George Washington Bridge. Um, oh. and, and probably roughly the same distance to the New York state border. So we're kind of sandwiched between the city and the state. Um, and uh, which is kind of cool on many levels. Sure. You know? Yeah. That's exactly how my wife describes where Dumont is. It's, it's X yeah. number of miles away from the GW Bridge. She exactly. says that every time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's probably the simplest way for anyone who gener- you know, just has a general understanding of the area to know where it is. So growing up there, are you always in New York City, like high school? When you, you go out with friends, you go to the city or nah? I was a lot. And so my entire family are from the city. Um, my parents both grew up in the Bronx. My grandparents, um, one of them grew up in the Bronx, but the rest all grew up in Manhattan. Uh, and then moved to the Bronx when they got married. So yeah, my, my family goes back to New York City for pretty much as far back as I know. I mean, obviously they at some point came from England, uh, Ireland and Italy, but um, yeah, they've been you know many generations in the city. So growing up, I had a lot of relatives still uh, not in Manhattan at that point, you know, in in the Bronx and in you know some areas like Pelham and stuff that you know right outside of the Bronx into Westchester, but. Um, so we would go in all the time. And my parents were also pretty cool about taking me into the village and, you know, downtown a lot. And they, they enjoyed it too. So as a kid, they would take me in quite a bit. And I was always attracted to it. I always gravitated towards it. I was always excited by it. It was just, it was pretty, I don't know, very exciting as a kid to come in and the buildings and the people and the energy and all of it. And I think being into music as a kid too really uh, got me excited to go into the city because that's where all the concerts were and the shows were and the musicians lived and, you know, the whole scene was happening. Oh, yeah. I mean, that by, makes total sense. By the time I was, I don't know, probably in eighth grade, freshman year, somewhere around there, I would come in with my friends. We would take the bus in and, like, walk around. And then, uh, yeah, the moment... I, I always kind of joke because the first chance my parents had... Um, they got out of the city and the first chance I had, I got back into the city. So, you know. <laughs> Isn't that always the way? <laughs> right. So yeah, I went at your there for college and stayed. Where'd you go to college? NYU. Oh, okay, great. What'd you major in? So I went to, uh, I was in a, a college within the university called Gallatin that allowed me to kind of create my own major, uh, which was pretty, pretty great for me. So um, my focus was musicology. So essentially music history, right? And um, 
uh, music business. They had a music business program there. So I was able to kind of do both, both of those uh, programs. If you were to study them at, if, you know, a degree in either would have been in different schools within the university. So the only way to have done both was to do it through this one school that allowed you to, I could take classes in all of the undergraduate schools in the university. Um, I, there was no restrictions as to what classes I could or couldn't take or what schools I couldn't take classes in or any of that, you know. All schools should be that way, right? It was pretty cool, yeah. It was, I couldn't imagine doing it a different way. I had no, no core requirements other than a certain amount of classes within my college that I was in. And uh, I had to pass a, an oral exam based on 24 books in order to graduate. But other than that, it was really pretty great. How hard, how hard was the oral exam? That sounds really, really hard. It was intense. It was, uh, it was 12 um, kind of classic texts that you were, were required to read. And the other 12 were, they kind of gave you categories that you could pick books and get them approved and then submit it. And it was, um, it was four faculty members. So it was like my advisor and three other faculty members that I, you get to invite them to come in. So, you, you know, it's not random. You get to kind of pick who you wanted there. And uh, it was three hours. It was an hour and a half and then like a 20 minute break and another hour and a half. It was intense. Of just um, speaking that whole time? Just speaking, yeah, about all oh these my books. Gosh. Yeah. So, um, so more intense than this podcast? <laughs> I'm not, probably a little bit. Not much though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that gives me so much anxiety. I don't think I could do that. I'm like sweating just thinking about it. It's all right. You know, you, you basically, when you're in that school uh, at NYU, you're basically preparing for it from the moment you start. You know, you're you're kind of focused on it. You know that that's coming. And so it wasn't, it wasn't as hard. I was freaked out. I think initially, you know, when I first got into college that this was looming, but by the time it came, I was, it was fine. It really wasn't that bad. Um, rewinding a little bit, you mentioned that growing up, you'd go into the city to go to shows, um, at different venues. What are the most memorable that you like stand out in your mind that you went to? Any I mean, well, certainly, ones? Certainly like the, the early couple ones. So my parents took me in 1979 to see the Bee Gees at Madison Square Garden. Oh, um, that's amazing. And that was, that was pretty mind-blowing. You know, I was uh, not just about turning nine and, you know, I knew the Bee Gees. You know, of course, Saturday Night Fever had come out and I knew who they were and all. But um, it was pretty, you know, it was pretty impressive for a nine-year-old kid and, you know, yeah, back then. Definitely. Uh, and then a year later, they took me to the garden to see Yes uh, in the round. And that, all, that really kind of blew the lid off things. That was, that was sort of the, you know, the start of it all after that show. That really just kind of messed with my mind to the point where, like, I, I knew that I had a problem with music. Like, I, <laughs> this was going to be a lifelong addiction, you know? <laughs> do, you play, do you play instruments? I do. Not so much these days uh, that often anymore. But... Um, I did. I started playing in about uh, third or fourth grade. I started with saxophone and drums and guitar. I eventually settled on bass. So by the time, um, you know, by the time I met Lisa in sixth grade, I was playing bass mostly. And I played, played through college, really. But I, I think, I don't know, I think I was a little probably too practical for my own good at that point. Plus, my dad was a booking agent. And, but he wasn't a booking agent of, you know, hugely successful bands he booked like bars and clubs and lounges and stuff all throughout new york new jersey connecticut pennsylvania and i you know i think my parents and myself didn't want to see me playing like in a lounge band when i was in my 30s or something so i was um i think i was a little too logical about being being a musician if you're you're going into the arts like that you kind of you can't be too logical you can't be too um 
too practical. You have to kind of go for it, you know? So I think I knew early on that like my chances of making it big were probably small. So maybe I don't bother, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's why I gravitated towards um, the business side of stuff. Cool. What, uh, so explain what you kind of did like in the back end of things. <laughs> uh, in the music business? Yeah. So um, mainly I worked for about a decade in the industry and for the majority of the time I worked for a trade magazine called Hits Magazine um, that are still around today. But uh, at the time back then they were a very powerful magazine. They, um, these magazines, there, there's a handful of them and they came out of uh, an older kind of function. They were called reporters and what they would do um, is they would weekly report new um, sales figures and ads at radio. So any new songs that were getting added at radio and their positioning. So they were kind of the original charts, but really not for the public, for the industry. Um, but this was done by picking up the phone and calling radio and calling retail and asking, what's selling? What, what did you play this week? What's on your playlist? What have you added? So doesn't take much to realize how corruptible that is um, and that's where you know the whole payola thing comes from and um, it really came down to relationships and these people were being paid by the record companies for their relationships with program directors at radio and, and people at retail to then sort of funnel that money through to them to say or do the things that they needed said and done um, Billboard magazine by the late 80s, I think, um, had kind of started with these other companies, two, uh, two ways of going about this in a much more legit fashion. Um, one was called SoundScan, where uh, the product at retail, when it would be scanned with the um, barcode, would register. So it would be a little bit more difficult to, to fudge, although it did get fudged. People would go in after hours and just scan over and over and over cases of whatever they needed scanned. Um, at radio, uh, even to this day, everything that gets played at radio and, and or on MTV, although I don't think MTV actually plays videos anymore, but back then they did, um, <laughs> has a digital fingerprint. So whenever it gets played at radio, it gets tracked um, in, in a computer as to you know what song, at what station, at what time, and what market, all that stuff gets, gets logged. So, um, that's called uh, BDS, Broadcast Data Systems. So that made it a little more difficult in the, by the 90s to, to really mess with stuff and fudge these numbers. So by the time I got there, that, that end of the business had stopped a little bit, not completely. I worked a lot with um, Sony Music at Columbia Records. And you know, anytime a program director uh, was having a baby, that new baby monitors got shipped out, and you know Sony Electronics would always get shipped out, and Playstations and all that stuff. So it was a little more subtle form of it, but it still happened all the time, you know. Sure. Um, yeah. So it, initially, I worked for this magazine on a computer program that they had that combined this broad, broadcast data system, BDS data, and SoundScan data, along with their own still reporting data, where people would just pick up the phone and call. Uh, and it gave them real time. Every Tuesday at radio are the new ads for the week. So every Tuesday was a big deal. And it would kind of come through like almost like a stock ticker. Um, I did that for a number of years and eventually uh, wrote for a column and worked. Now, the, the magazine was based in Sherman Oaks out in the Valley in California. Uh, I was here in New York. Um, but 
uh, I wrote for a column called Wheels and Deals. That was basically who was getting signed, who was getting attention from record labels, who what bands were getting shopped by various lawyers or whatever. Um, so that was a weekly column, and I was kind of the you know the ear to the street in New York City for them. Um, did that until uh, I'll say ninety nine or two thousand, and then um, got hired by a company to do a, a feasibility study for them on um, a digital CD player that would live on your computer and track your listening habits. Uh, terrible idea. So I did that for a month or two with them and then got hired by .com. I was like, I need some of this .com money, you know? But by then, yeah. it was it was post-March 2000 crash or whatever, so it wasn't as, as great as it had been in, in the years prior. I got hired uh, by a company called localmusic.com and it was, uh, you know, it was kind of a classic internet store from back then. It was these two kids. They were right out of, fresh out of uh, Georgetown. They started this, um, this .com that, you know, essentially was like local music. Who's playing in your local area, you know? Um, they, they took like two months to hire me, interview after interview. I was going to run the Northeast office for them. They hired me in October of 2000, and by January of 2001, they were out of business. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> so... That, and that was it. Like, that was the end of my music business days. I, I went on a handful of interviews um, and things had gotten really tough because it was a combination of uh, a lot of the dot-com stuff kind of go, going away at that point. You know, it had kind of peaked and, and started receding. So a lot of the people who had left the traditional end of the industry, the brick and mortar stuff, and went to the internet were now coming back. And I realized that you know, the job I wanted or the job I probably should have had by that time at my age, you know, I was competing against people who had 10, 15 years more experience than me. Um, so it was kind of, you know, it was a hard pill for me to swallow. My Most of my life up until that point, I always thought I would work with music, in music, around music in some way. Um, so it was, it was weird. I didn't know quite what to do for a little while. Um, I had briefly moved back to Dumont and I was living in the house I grew up in with uh, my girlfriend who eventually became my wife at the time. Um, we, we were living together in, in Manhattan and I had a rent stabilized place. Stabilization expired, my rent went up by over a thousand dollars in one lease and realized, all right, I gotta figure something out. My parents own a four family house in Dumont so they had an apartment that was available, we went out there. But it was, a, it was a rough little period in my life. I had just turned 30, I was living back in my parents' house, so to speak, and um, I kind of realized that my dream of working in music for the rest of my life was probably coming to an end. So it was a little weird period. Um, although, you know, it opened up other doors and led to other things. So it's, uh, it's interesting how life works like that. Not, yeah. not quite a middle age crisis, but uh, maybe a version of that. <laughs> yeah, to a degree. You know, definitely a, a wake up point where I had to rethink my, my entire life. Yeah. Yeah, so let's. I want to back up real quickly because my wife would be furious if I didn't ask you about your fondest memories of uh, growing up in Dumont. Sure. So, wow. I mean, you know, I think it's just the ability, and I'm not sure if this ability exists anymore, but the ability to just get up as a kid and go out the door and meet my friends on the street and play all day and, you know, not come back home until dinner. Um, and, you know, there was for better or worse, just a lot of, uh, a lot of mischief to get into <laughs> in, in, a, in the suburbs. You know, I, I feel like, um, 
I look at my kids now growing up in New York City and, and they at, are at once exposed to much more stuff, much more stuff culturally than I ever was growing up in Dumont. But they also live a bit more sheltered life too because they don't just go out on the street and play and hang out and do whatever, you know. And they're, they're about to turn 12. Um, and, you know, it does it, you can't do that in the city so much anymore. Um, I think when my parents were growing up, particularly in the Bronx and those neighborhoods, you could do it because there were so many kids in those buildings. Um, you know, where we live in, in North Brooklyn, there are a lot of kids, but it's, it's dispersed. Not, it's not concentrated on one block where, you know, the street I live in has, you know, hundreds of kids, my, my kids' age, and they all meet up and play on the street. That just doesn't exist like that in the city now. Um, yeah, it's not where we live. Yeah, and it, uh, 24-hour news, social media scares every mom and dad out there too. So Yeah, that, that, that's a part of it. Uh, and, and also just the, you know, the entertainment part of it where kids are, you know, they're not as apt to just go out and hang out on the street and play with their friends. I mean, I think if we all grew up with a, a phone or an iPad in our hands, we probably would have been doing the same a lot too. I'm not sure we would have gotten out as much, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, but I, I'm still very close with a, a group of friends that I have known anywhere from kindergarten through sixth grade. Um, we still see each other quite often. We talk all the time. And um, so, I, yeah, it's definitely, I, I do have really great, although I wanted to leave the moment I could, I do really have great memories of it. <laughs> Had a great time growing up there. Yeah, my recollection since I'm married to a, a woman from Dumont is uh, it was two square miles. And it yeah. was very square, and uh, yeah. it just seemed like a, a fun place to grow up, but yeah. not too ex- not too exciting, but also not uh, boring or bad in any way. No, it was you know it was an interesting town, a very densely populated town, two square miles, but probably thirty something thousand people. Okay. Um, I mean, Jersey's the most densely populated state, and Bergen County is the most densely populated county within that state. So it was it was intense. The majority, I'm not sure where Lisa's parents are from, but. Um, the majority of the kids I grew up with, their parents all came from either the outer boroughs of New York or the west side of Manhattan. Uh, and they were predominantly uh, Irish, Italian, and, and Jewish. You know, yeah. almost, almost all. Um, and it was, you know, I, there was a decent amount, like one of my closest friends to this day is Cuban. So there was, you know, a, a decent Hispanic population. Um, it was, you know, decent Asian population. It was, it was relatively diverse, um, probably more diverse today. Yeah. Her parents came from uh, Bergenfield, uh, by way of Queens. I think her right. grandparents were from Queens. Exactly. So yeah. right, it wasn't her parents and it was her grandparents. Right. right. Yeah, that's right. But, but most of that area, very few friends of mine had parents that grew up in New Jersey, you know, originally, or their, you know, their whole families came from New Jersey. Most came from New York city. Yep. No doubt. Yeah. That's awesome. I, um, I'm always really jealous of people who grew up in such a melting pot because you probably had a lot of exposure to all different kinds of foods. I mean, just different yeah. like uh, religions in general. I'm from a very small town in Virginia where we don't have any of that diversity. So <laughs> it's like to think I lived in, well, I lived in New York City for a few years. And when I w- would meet someone that said they grew up there, I just, I couldn't comprehend that. I'm like, wait, so you were raised in New York City. I just, it didn't seem like anybody, it couldn't soak in. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Yeah, yeah, you know, even my mom, so my mom um, is of Italian descent. She grew up in in a pretty dense Italian neighborhood in the Bronx, but she, her best friend as a child growing up was Jewish. So my mom picked up 
um, you know, some dishes and stuff from her her girlfriend and her girlfriend's family. So I grew up eating things like matzo brai and, and uh, white fish and stuff like that, that, you know, certainly my parents weren't Jewish at all, but uh, I think just those things, just like a lot of Italian dishes or became New York food. It didn't, it wasn't looked at as a different ethnicity. It just became part of the New York canon of food. Um, and everyone knows it and appreciates it, no matter what your, you know, specific background is. If you came from New York, you, you know, all that stuff. You ate at delis all the time. You ate pastrami sandwiches just as much as you ate spaghetti meatballs, you know? Yeah, my, my mother-in-law is uh, Sicilian, full-blooded Sicilian. And right. apparently she stopped cooking uh, when I met Lisa. <laughs> Perfect time. <laughs> yeah. So how old were you when you knew you loved uh, food? Oh, really young. I mean, I was lucky in that, you know, I'd said earlier, my parents owned this four-family house. So um, in 1975, my mom's parents, who were living in the Bronx, came and moved to the apartment downstairs from us. So at five years old, I had my Italian grandparents essentially living with me and as built-in babysitters. So not only did they cook and I ate their food all the time, but I, I would spend weekends with them. My parents would go away for the weekend or go out on Friday, Saturday nights, and I would be with my grandparents. And, you know, from the time we woke up in the morning, I think we started preparing food in some way, grating cheese or, I mean, they would grate their own cheese, make their own breadcrumbs, make their own pasta all the time from scratch and, you know, peel garlic all day. And this was just like normal stuff, clean squid. I mean, I seriously have cleaned an, easily an ocean's worth of squid uh, <laughs> as a child growing up. Um, I've, so never clean, we were, I've never cleaned a squid. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, yeah, I was pretty, um, you know, entrenched in it early on and, and appreciated it. When I was a child, you know, six, seven, eight years old, I mean, until my grandparents passed away, every Sunday was, and I'm an only child. So this was not like me and my brothers and sisters getting to hang out. This was my parents, my grandparents and myself would sit down at about three o'clock in the afternoon at the table and knock it up till about eight. Um, <laughs> I'm not kidding. It was wow. many, many courses. Um, and this was every single Sunday without fail. Uh, unless it was a holiday or something we, you know, there's something else going on. You know, it was mother's day perhaps that didn't happen, but um, but other than that, every Sunday, you know, wow. I love that. Well, hey, go, go, go yeah. through the courses, uh, if you, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, sure. So, um, so it would all, it would always start in the afternoon with, um, my grandmother would, she'd make the meatballs. So what, what she would make on Sundays was called gravy. Um, and it's sort of it's known as gravy really only in the kind of New York area. Um, and it seems like an odd thing to call tomato sauce, but it's a really very meat-heavy sauce. So I guess that's where it came from. I'm not quite sure, honestly, who first started calling it gravy, but it's known as gravy. So Sunday gravy um, would start in the afternoon with my grandmother just always putting aside a little bit of uh, the ground beef from the meatballs, and she'd make these tiny ones um, and fry them up in some olive oil and then give them to me uh, as like a little snack on toothpicks. So that was usually the first, first course, like pre-sitting down. Um, and then the first course was pasta usually. That was that was it. The, the pasta would come out. Um, if it was handmade, it was usually cavatelli. If it wasn't, it was usually uh, the long fusilli, the fusilli um, that kind of is like sp spaghetti length, but curly, uh, or maybe rigatoni. And 
after the pasta was done, then all the meat that was in the gravy would come out. So sausages and meatball and brajol, uh, any little bits of meat that were left over from the week went into the gravy. Um, usually, you know, meats that stand up to braising well, you know, things like that. Uh, my grandmother would always put something that um, nowadays is very difficult to find, but cotina, which is essentially just pigskin that would get seasoned and rolled up and tied up just like the brajol and, and that would go in the gravy. And that was the best. That's so unctuous and delicious. And, uh, and it would add a lot of great flavor to the, to the gravy, but also just eating that. It sounds really kind of gross eating pigskin, but <laughs> trust me, it's like soft and it's really good. Um, so that would all come out. And that was a lot, you know, that was a lot of food. When that was over, um, there was usually a little bit of a salad of some sort. Um, and that could be something more like a traditional salad that we all know of, right? Of course, it was always just olive oil and red wine vinegar. There was no, you know, dressings beyond that. Um, and then uh, sometimes it could be like shaved fennel and some orange slices and thing, things like that. Um, often she would do something that, again, seems a little kind of odd, but she'd do orange slices with olive oil and salt and pepper on them. Um, and that was sort of like a little bit of a palate cleanser. Uh, then um, there would be uh, coffee and nuts usually. Actually, kind of before the coffee came, the, the nuts would come out. There was always a big thing of mixed nuts, always often walnuts. And that was always to like eat up maybe with some cheese and some stuff like that to finish whatever wine was left at the table, basically. My grandfather would often crack the walnuts and put them in his glass of wine. Um, and then sort of, you know, at the end, eat the, eat the wine-soaked walnuts out of the glass. Uh, and then coffee. Um, and coffee was always accompanied with uh, usually a little bit of chocolate. Um, if it was a pastry or something, it was nothing too sweet, nothing. Uh, you know, Italians, they'll eat sweet stuff for breakfast, but they're not really a big dessert culture. Um, so they're even, you know, they might be like, some sesame cookie or something, you know, that's like sweet, but not really sugary sweet. Um, and then there was always, for the adults, there was always uh, anazette or sambuca or something with the coffee. Um, and, uh, and that was it. But these courses, like, you know, coffee alone could be an hour and a half of just, you know, pot, they would make a manganetta, which is the, if you're not familiar with it, it's sort of the upright cylindrical pot that goes on directly on the stove oh, yeah. um, and kind of percolates through. So it was, it was espresso, but not, nobody had espresso machines back then. <laughs> right, right. Um, and uh, and the, the whole pot, the whole manganetta would, would sit on the table. Um, so yeah, coffee alone could be an hour and a half, you know. And, and you uh, sat, as a, as a kid, you sat through the entire... I sat there. Yeah. I mean, certainly at the end of it, I was fidgety and there were you know, I'd probably get get up between courses a little bit and, you know, maybe do something for a minute or two, but eh, not much. It was a lot of just sitting there and, and hanging out with adults and talking. And no cannolis? Uh, rarely, unless somebody came over and stopped at like a pastry place and, and bought them. No. Uh, huh. If it was just like what my grandparents had, that was almost always just some chocolate, like some dark chocolate. Um, yeah, it wasn't like a big spread of dessert. So unless there was company or, you know, other people came and brought that. Um, every now and then my grandmother or my mom or somebody would make uh, a cheese, Italian cheesecake. So there might be oh, yeah. that there or like some Italian cookies, 
um, struffoli, which are the tiny little like dough balls that are covered in honey. Um, but these are not like the sexiest of desserts by any means, especially for a young <laughs> kid. You're sort of like, meh. <laughs> and I feel like as an only child, I'm an only child too. I was always around adults. It would be like yeah. my parents or their friends who are also obviously adults. And so you kind of learn to become amongst the adults quite often rather than right. a lot, all of my friends who would always have siblings running around to play with and stuff. So you kind oh, of no adapt question. to that. Yeah. No question. I think it definitely, you know, helped me mature a little faster and helped me, I think, you know, be a better conversationalist and uh, all of those things contributed to it. No, no, no question. You know, they, that, that was the upside of it. Uh, yeah. I think it wasn't until I got older when I realized like, oh, it wouldn't be the worst thing to have a brother or sister. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way. And people give uh, only children a hard time. Anytime I tell anyone I'm an only child, I get the same reaction. Uh, yeah, like, of course. Oh, you're right. one of those. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, just, I just assume you and Joe are uh, very selfish. Exactly. I'm here to change everyone's opinion. All right. So let's talk about when you're 30 and, and uh, you, you moved back with your parents. What, yeah. happened, what happened next? So, um, you know, it was a confluence of many things. So shortly after this company went under uh, in January of 01, uh, you know, by September, we all know what happened. Right. So that really threw a wrench into everything. And uh my wife, like I said, we weren't married at the time, but she was working for, I mean, she has actually a really great classic internet story of the day of the companies that she was working for. She, she first started at a, uh, a web design company, um, started by these two kids, again, fresh out of college, young. Uh, one was the child of very, two very famous architects. Um, so he had a little you know, money to play with. Uh, they were successful. This is back when you know, designing a website cost $20,000 or something because nobody knew what the hell they had to do. And they, but then, you know, they made a lot of really dumb mistakes. They were about to get bought out by a much bigger company in the UK and they stopped getting new work because they figured, you know, we're, we're on the road to easy street. We're going to get bought out for all kinds of money. And then the dot-com bubble crashed and uh, they retracted the bid. And now all of a sudden these guys were you know, kind of stuck with a lot of debt and no income and the company went under. Uh, they had a spin-off company though called Thin Air Apps that did wireless applications, mostly for RIM, for BlackBerry um, and for Palm Pilot and that kind of stuff. Remember Palm Pilots? Yeah. Um, I, I do. I don't think the other two do. I do. <laughs> I've read about them. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, that company, that was another great, situation so she actually she was a controller for the company she went when the, when the web design company uh went under she was brought over to the to the wireless applications company um they were given an offer by palm actually for i don't know something like 20 something million dollars to get bought out and these guys turned it down thinking oh wow in a, in a few years we're gonna get triple oh, that, you know oh. uh post september 11th palm wound up buying them for something closer to like 12 million and it was like barely enough to cover their debt Wow. Um, so just like classic, you know, dot com stories. So anyway, she was now out of work, uh, getting great unemployment because of uh, sort of like what's going on now. The government was, you know, uh, giving all sorts of extra unemployment benefits. Um, I had had an idea for quite a while because I'd gotten into craft beer by like 89 or so, um, like just out of high school. I had stumbled upon one night on the old, the original Discovery Channel, 
Uh, and that's another thing, if you're not old enough to remember, the Discovery Channel, uh, A&E, Bravo, these channels were very different channels to what they are today. They played much different programming. Uh, it was much more serious programming. I mean, Bravo was all foreign films and um, same with A&E. You could see like the opera on A&E and, um, and Discovery Channel was like real documentaries and like they would show BBC documentaries all the time. And I stumbled upon this BBC documentary on beer by a guy named Michael Jackson not the guy with the glove, but this other kind of <laughs> long-haired, bearded, crazy English journalist. And I was never a big fan of beer. Um, I was, I don't know, it never like tasted good to me. I always kind of thought it sucked. When I remember we were in like maybe freshman year of high school and a friend of mine was having a party and I convinced them, instead of getting a keg of like Budweiser, to get a keg of Tuborg Dark. And... Uh, there was two board, two board gold and two board dark. Cause I figured like at least dark beer seems like it has some flavor, you know? Yeah. Um, of course everyone hated it and I loved it. Um, <laughs> but I stumbled upon this documentary and I was fascinated by it. Absolutely fascinated by all of this history and, and all these little nuances in beer and distinctions in beer and beer culture and the different beers from Belgium to Germany, the UK and stuff I knew nothing about. And I, anytime I kind of get excited about stuff like that, I, I don't do it uh, in half steps. I'm always like full on like anything I can possibly get my hands on. I want it. I want all the information immediately. Uh, and that's kind of how I took to, to beer. I went to the library, got every book I possibly could on beer. Um, I, homebrewing was kind of a little bit of a thing, but it was still fairly obscure. You still really had to search out places that you could buy homebrewing equipment and, and supplies from. There was this one place in Manhattan uh, in Soho that I went to called Milano Labs that I wish was still around because it was, you walked into this place and it was absolutely like time machine going back in time. It was incredible. This like kind of spice store, old spice store that was like, looked like it was out of, you know, the mid 19th century. Um, and I started homebrewing. Certainly by 1990, I was homebrewing. Um, and my first beer, I, I like, you know, I had said earlier, I grew up cooking a bit. So I had, and brewing is very much like cooking in many ways. Uh, and beer is very much like food. Um, the ingredients that are in it also, you know, the whole process from roasting the grain to brewing the beer. Um, it's much more like cooking than winemaking is, let's say. Um, so I took to it very quickly and I, and I had, decent success with my first beer it was a brown ale and i remember thinking this is good nice but like i don't know i could go to the store and buy a really good brown ale what do i need to buy you know brew my own brown ale for um so that was the last conventional beer i ever brewed every beer i brewed after that was just something completely off the wall which you know funny how it goes it, it wound up taking another um, almost 20 years before that became a norm in, in beer but it certainly did become a norm in beer where you know, using really strange ingredients and putting weird things into beers became norm. But uh, yeah, I was doing this by like 90, 91. I was uh, malting my own amaranth to make a beer out of amaranth. I was wow. putting cocoa powder in beer. I was I did a lot of beers that I fermented with wine yeasts and, uh, and other, you know, non-beer yeasts and a lot of fun doing stuff like that. And some were absolutely wonderful and some were terrible. Um, but it was much more fun even making a terrible beer 
um, experimenting and learning and doing that than just brewing, uh, you know, another IPA or another pale ale or, you know, it's like, I could go to the store and buy that. I, who needs that? You know? Um, so it was really fun. Uh, and that sort of got me into craft beer. So all through the early nineties, I was passionate about craft beer. I'd find craft beer wherever I could. And, you know, I have a bunch of friends who were into it. And I always had this idea in the back of my mind to do a craft beer bar the way I thought a craft beer bar should be. Not at the time, all craft beer bars were any beer that had any bar that had any cool beer was essentially just like a crappy dive bar or a sports bar or something like that, that just also happened to have craft beer. Um, they usually were not places I was terribly interested in hanging out. Certainly not a place you'd take a date or your wife or girlfriend to. It was kind of like, meh, you know, not, not exciting. And when I first went to Europe and saw these kind of beer cafes in Belgium and places like that, I realized, well, this is, this is how it should be. This is much more sophisticated, much more serious approach to it. And it, it, it treats beer with a little more reverence. And you know, I felt like great beer should be treated the same way. Great wine or great anything should be treated, not, not be a lesser class citizen. Um, so I had these ideas for how I would want to do a beer bar. Uh, I'd want it to be a, a warm, cozy, inviting space. I'd want it to be fairly well lit. Um, I'd want there to be some good, interesting snacks. And I'd want to keep the beers at the right temperature and serve them in proper glasses, not necessarily the branded glasses that the breweries do for advertising, but a, a glass that's going to show the beer best, mostly wine glasses. Um, but honestly, I was in music. I didn't like, I wasn't going to, I knew nothing about it. I never, ever worked in a bar or restaurant in my life at that point. So I had very little knowledge of what that would be. And I thought maybe this is something I'll do when I retire, you know, I'm in my sixties or something, maybe I'll open up a little craft beer bar. Well, fast forward to post September 11th. Uh, my wife and I are both out of work, not knowing what the hell to do. And I decide, you know, money was cheap at the time as it is now, right? They were kind of giving loans away pretty easily, tons of credit cards. I'd saved up a bunch of money. One of the reasons why we moved out to Jersey was to put some money aside to buy an apartment back in the city. So I saved up about, I don't know, 20, 30 grand at the time. And um, I spent about a year putting a business plan together for this bar. Um, my parents put in a little bit of money. We couldn't get many other people to put up much money. I think a friend of my dad's gave us like a thousand dollars. I think it was more like, here you go, kid, whatever. You know, <laughs> never expecting anything to happen. Sure. Um, and we put a ton of money on credit cards and uh, eventually found the right spot and went for it and opened up this, this beer bar. And that was my first place. That was Spite and Dival. And that was um, in September of 2003. Excuse me. Um, and we knew fairly quickly that we were onto something that this place was going to do well. And that sort of is how everything kind of got started. That's awesome. Were you serving food or was it just, yeah, beer? we do. Um, well, so we have to, in New York state, uh, as probably a lot of places, you kind of almost always, depending on now, there's a lot of different liquor licenses in New York state that you can have, but almost all of them require some sort of food be served. Um, so at the very least you needed to sell potato chips or pretzels or something. Uh, we did something at the time, which rarely ever saw, um, we did charcuterie and cheeses and some uh, some really interesting pickles and things like that. Um, now that's commonplace, but at the time, very few places were doing anything along those lines. Um, 
and it's fun. It's, it's funny to think in a relatively short period of time how you know something can go from seemingly groundbreaking to sort of like boring. You know, <laughs> you were ahead of uh, the, ahead of the times. Yeah, I mean, to a degree, yes, no question. And we were certainly ahead of you know timing. Timing and luck have a lot to do with all of this, all of this, and and I think life in general, and you know, though there had been this craft beer movement, like I said, starting in sort of the late 80s, early 90s, and it faded away by the, by the end of, you know, by the turn of the, the current century. Um, it was there, but it, it had become like, you know, in the background, just kind of on simmer. And there was just, you know, kind of the beer geeks that were into it, and that was that. So we definitely timed it a few years ahead of what became now the current insane beer culture that we have today. Um, so we were lucky in that sense. We definitely, you know, we definitely were ahead of that curve, no question. That's fantastic. What is your favorite beer to this day? Like if you're going to have a beer, what do you go grab? Uh, I would say nine times out of 10, it is probably a really great German Pilsner. Okay. Um, because uh, it's the most pleasurable drinking beer when it's just to drink a beer. Uh, I generally... and. I would say this wasn't true when I first got into beer and I, I have a little bit of a theory as to why this happens, but you know, when I first got into craft beer, I gravitated to the complete other end of the spectrum uh, of anything that I would have known resembling beer prior to that. Right. So everything I knew of beer growing up was sort of Miller light, right. That kind of thing. <laughs> um, so I wanted barley wines and stouts and things like that. Um, Belgian doubles, big, rich, malty, powerful, alcoholic beers. Um, but eventually, uh, it kind of got over that. And I think most people who have gotten into beer and wine have made that same sort of trajectory from power and intensity to to subtlety and nuance. Um, it's much more difficult to brew a really great Pilsner than it is to brew a, a good barley wine or imperial stout. Uh, it takes a lot more brewing skill. Um, nothing to hide behind, no hops or alcohol or, you know, malt sweetness or any of that to hide behind. Um, and you know, let's, let's face it. I generally, you know, people would ask me this question when I was working behind the bar all the time, what's your favorite beer? And so much of it is what time of day is it? And what time of year is it? <laughs> sure, Honestly, yeah. is it, yeah. is it four o'clock in the afternoon or is it four o'clock in the morning? And is it, you know, January or July? Um, I'm going to reach for a different beer in all different cases. So that has a lot to do with it. But I would say, generally speaking, it's, it's on the lighter side. And I, I like low alcohol beers. I like, uh, <clears throat> I definitely like sour beers, things that have like some good acidity to them because that's okay. kind of a quenching quality. Mm -hmm. Um, I've always been a huge fan of Lambic, traditional Lambic, real Lambic. Um, we've always been, you know, major supporters of, of true Lambic beer. Um, so that's generally my favorite stuff. Before we leave beer, uh, do you have a favorite Hefeweizen? Ah, you know, funny thing is that's probably my least favorite oh, type of beer. That's my favorite. <laughs> really? Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's something, and it's it's not the wheat. I like wheat beers. Uh, it's the yeast in particular that um, those wheat beers use. Uh, to me, it, there's a, a flavor, a, a kind of clovey kind of quality that I, I don't love. Uh, it's probably the beer I would drink the least and in my life have drunk the least. So, so um, you, you have a very sophisticated palate. I do not. 
<laughs> no, look, it's a very quenching beer and people love it. Um, there is a, a beer by uh, George Schneider, a German uh, Bavarian brewery, um, called Schneider Edelweiss, which is the closest beer to the original Oktoberfest beer. Um, and it's a bit hoppier than, but German hops, not American. So it's not, when I say hoppy, it's not going to taste like what we think of as hoppy beers now. Um, but I would say that's probably my favorite of them. If, if I had to pick one of that style. I'm, I'm writing this down, Joe. Okay. <laughs> Taking notes. <laughs> yeah. Schneider Edelweiss. Got it. <laughs> Next time we do a podcast, I think we should all have one. We should. Uh, well, we're sharing this one. We'll share, we'll share it's it. all good. I want to taste it too. So, I don't really know anything about beer, so this is enlightening for me. So, Joe, you're at the beach right now. Are you at the shore? I am, yeah. And Do you live in the city or do you live in Jersey? I live in the city. I live in Brooklyn. Okay. Oh, so you live. Okay. Got it. What part of yeah. Brooklyn? In Williamsburg. Actually, I'm kind of right on the Williamsburg Greenpoint border in North Brooklyn. Oh, okay. Uh, I lived in Bed-Stuy for a few years, like 2012 to 2013, 14, and then lived in Clinton Hill for a while. And then the last year that I lived in New York, I lived in Staten Island, but I tend to nice. leave that part out, <laughs> the forgotten borough. <laughs> nice. Staten yeah. Island. Nothing like taking a ferry to work every day, especially when it's eight degrees outside. I'm sure. <laughs> it wasn't Wild. too bad. Yeah. That's a rarity. I got to say, like, to not be from Staten Island and move to Staten Island, that doesn't happen much. That's a very small <laughs> percentage of the people who live in Staten Island. Yeah, Very I good. get that a lot. I get that a lot. And it was for a guy and it didn't last long. And then after that, uh, when the relationship fell apart, I think it was a mix of, I live in Staten Island. My relationship just fell apart. I'm moving back to Virginia. And so I just left. So funny. As fast as I could. Yeah. No, I think if I never lived, if I never moved to Staten Island and I stayed in Brooklyn the entire time, I think I probably would have stayed in New York a lot longer. But I right. think that was the beginning of the end, Staten Island, which should maybe be the motto for Staten Island. Yeah, you know, the, end. For, <laughs> the beginning of the end, no question. Um, you know, it's interesting because of rents in the last, you know, 20 years, uh, so many people that I know now who have moved to New York for the first time immediately moved to Brooklyn. For me, Brooklyn was where you went to after you lived in Manhattan for a long time or, you know, something like that. So I lived in Manhattan for a decade before I, I ventured out to Brooklyn. Um, but yeah, now it's, now you move directly to Brooklyn. You know, nobody, nobody goes to Manhattan anymore. It's just too expensive. And it's also quite frankly, like not where the cooler stuff is happening anymore. Right. Um, right. Yeah. You know, There's, it happened um, for quite a while. So much great stuff about Brooklyn. I've, I've just endless stuff to do like weekends, going with your friends to like smorgasbord and yeah. just eating everything in sight and then taking like a three hour nap afterwards. Cause you've yeah. spent like four hours eating ramen burgers and drinking beer <laughs> and getting sunburn. <laughs> um, yeah. It's pretty great. Brooklyn's awesome. Is uh, Williamsburg your favorite? You know, I mean, I guess so. It's where I am. It's where I've been now for 16 years or whatever. Um, I think Williamsburg, it's changed. I mean, certainly in 05 when all the condos started getting built, it, it, it changed the complexion of the neighborhood. And certainly what Williamsburg was over the, you know, from the 80s up until say 05, 06, 07, 08, somewhere around then, uh, it's, it's not that at all anymore. I mean, um, all the cool kids, all the artists and musicians and all that, they're in Bushwick, they're in Ridgewood, Queens, they're not in Williamsburg. They can't afford it. It's, it's just much too expensive. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. It's, uh, I, you know, it's very expensive. So Williamsburg, unfortunately, I mean, look, it is what it is. And I, I tell people all the time, uh, New York does not care about your nostalgia. It, New York 
just doesn't give a crap. It it moves and it it roll it steamrolls over everything and um it you know get over it is right. really what comes down to you know you're wistful for the old neighborhood you know reminiscing about the old days or the the old diner that used to be there or the old bar that like move on new york's not your town um yeah. new york just doesn't care man money money is what drives new york and all else has to come to that so uh I love those like, old photos of the subway with all the graffiti in it, where it's yeah. just, uh, it, it, it looks like a completely different transit system than it does today. You know, it's funny. So many, so many people get, you know, kind of wistful for that too. Like, oh, the way it used to be in the seventies or the eighties. And it was, that was real New York. And I tell you, man, like I was a kid, but still it, it was not, not cool. I mean, New York was dangerous. It was shady. It was dirty and nasty. And like, you know, I don't like that it's gotten a bit more homogenous and I don't like that it's gotten more corporate and th- that stuff sucks. But I also like that, you know, the murder rate is down to what it was in the 50s. I'm sure. Um, you know what I mean? Like, I-, I like the fact that it's safe and clean and nice and uh, I-, I-, I don't long for the 70s in New York. You know, there's, Sorry, there's aspects of it, I think, that were wonderful and incredible. But generally speaking... You know, it's just like it might it might be wonderful to have lived in the in the twenties or the you know the eighteen nineties, but you know there was no antibiotics and yeah, you know people <laughs> <laughs> died of cholera. And, you know, right? So right, it's, yeah. you know, it's always nice to look back on things, but generally speaking, it's things are better today. I, re- I remember going up there as a kid in the 70s, and after being there about a day, I, I looked at both my parents, I'm like, why are we here? <laughs> <laughs> well, when I first moved to New York and I moved to Bed-Stuy, and when I would meet people who were, had lived in New York City their whole lives, they were like, you would never live in Bed-Stuy like in the 90s or 80s. Oh, God, no. yeah. 80s. I had friends who lived in, in Bed-Stuy and in Fort Greene in the 90s, and you know, they would joke that their their exercise was running home from the train station, you know, when they got out of the subway, like running home, basically. So yeah, to avoid any problems. Yeah, uh, no, it's, it was. Not I like mean, no, they've got like great restaurants there. It's uh, for the stories of what I've heard of the past is far different than the bed sty that I knew in the 2012 ish. Yeah. yeah, no question. No question. Very different. Um. So you're in the craft beer business. And then did that give you the taste of owning your own place and wanting to move into more of a restaurant field instead of just focusing on beer? Yeah, I think, you know, as I said earlier, I didn't have a background in the bar restaurant business. Um, So I, for better or worse, was able to avoid some of the, I don't know, I think typical pitfalls that people who are either, you know, a maitre d or a chef or somebody like that and opens their own places fall into. So I didn't, I wasn't there working. I mean, I worked behind the bar the, uh, of my first place for the first three years because I mean, I had to in many ways, but I wasn't compelled to be a bartender. I wasn't compelled to be a chef or anything like that. And I didn't have experience doing it. Although I knew how to cook very well. I, I was never a chef. I was never, I never worked in a kitchen, a professional kitchen. Um, so I realized that, you know, though we were making very good money at the bar, um, we could make more money if we had more places. And I also got to a point after three years, I kind of stopped working behind the bar because I had enough employees. We were doing quite well. And that first year was fun. It was, you know, hey, I'm making a bunch of money and I'm, I don't have to work. I get to do whatever I want every day. 
and then kind of got boring and I kind of got fidgety and was like, I, you know, I want to do something. I had gotten into barbecue in a really kind of circuitous way. Um, I got, I got into barbecue in New York city, which doesn't happen, especially <laughs> right, back in yeah. the nineties. Um, I had a friend of mine who was a Jewish kid from Connecticut. So it's not like he was, you know, somebody from down South, uh, who I went to college with. And he took me to a place called brothers barbecue. Um, that was on, uh, just off Houston street. I forget exactly what, what street it was on. And I had pulled pork for the first time and it was, it was Carolina, like North Carolina style barbecue. Mm, and when I grew up, my dad had a friend who was a dean at Rutgers University, but he was this Puerto Rican guy who would do these um, like Puerto Rican pig roasts every summer. And we'd go to a bunch of these every summer. And I felt, you know, as a little kid, I fell in love with this, like the cook of, I mean, the taste of slow cooked pork, which just like and the crispy mm. skin, but the, you know, that really delicious, unctuous pork that cooked for 14 hours or 18 hours, you know? And when I, had pulled pork for the first time, it reminded me of that. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. I love this. And like I had said earlier about craft beer, I, over the next couple of years, dove headfirst into barbecue, reading what I could about it at the time. There wasn't a lot. Um, there was no internet to go to. And I didn't go down south often, but anytime I did, I would try to find as many legendary barbecue places as I could and, and make sure I ate them. Um, sometime shortly after college, I went to Home Depot and bought like a $40 bullet smoker, kept it at my parents in, in Dumont. And every few weekends I would go back and try ribs, try brisket, try pork and give it all a shot. And I, again, I think cause I had a bit of background in, in cooking and I knew what it should taste like. And I had success early on. And in fact, the dry rub recipe that we use, um, at Fet Sao to, to this day is based on the first dry rub I ever put together. Oh, it's wow. Very, it's essentially the exact same recipe. Um, so I took to it pretty, pretty quickly and I really fell in love with it. And by the time we had opened the bar, I had now been to many legendary barbecues, barbecue places. I had been barbecuing for a bunch of years. We would actually close the bar every 4th of July for the first few years we were open and I would stay up all night making pork shoulder and brisket and ribs and all this kind of stuff for everyone. And, uh, and it was, it was a lot of fun. And I had jury duty one day. I remember it was really warm day in February and I, but I had a little bit of a cold and I came back and I went to this coffee shop around the corner from our place where we were living, which was right next door to my bar at the time. And the guy who owned the coffee shop who had opened up like just a few days before we had opened up our bar. So we became pretty good friends told me, Hey, the, a garage across the street from you is available for rent. You should go take a look at it. So I go over there and it's this big triple lot with a giant open space in the front where they had cars and three separate garages. And I go and I look at the space. It's this old Italian guy moved to, moved to America in 1970 and bought, wound up buying a bunch of property. And I mean, you know, some of these immigrants who came over back in the seventies and eighties, moved to Williamsburg and bought stuff for buildings for $10,000, $50,000, wound up selling it for millions. Wow. So great, oh you know, kind of great American story, right? Yeah. Anyway, so he had this space. His, his son-in-law had a metal shop in there, metal fabrication shop in there. And um, I, I took a look at the spot and it was really raw, cinder block garage, kind of a mess. Not terribly big, but big enough. 
Um, and I didn't know I wanted to do barbecue. I, I had a handful of ideas of potential things I could do. But when I saw the space, I realized I could, this is made for barbecue. This, you know, this is the quintessential barbecue location. And it's funny because when I told the guy what I was going to do there, I, you know, I think he looked at me like I was out of my mind. Like, are you going to put a <laughs> restaurant in here? Are you nuts? Like, you know, and I probably was. I think had I known a bit about what it was going to take, I and mean, there was, um, there was a hazmat restriction on on the place through the city, so I had to get an environmental study done on, you know, to make sure we weren't poisoning people and mm-hmm. all sorts wow. of stuff. Um, but yeah, I found the spot and decided, all right, I'm going to do barbecue here. It's perfectly suited for it. I knew I could make good barbecue. Um, although I got to tell you, I was a little freaked out because I didn't know how to run a restaurant of any sort, any food service stuff. We did cured meats and cheeses at the bar. That was simple. A bartender just sliced it on the meat slicer, cut it with a knife and put it on these wooden kind of planks to serve. It was very basic and simple. Even that, I remember it took me a week or so to like, swallow that pill and do it, you know? Um, so the entire time we were opening, you're building out this place. I remember telling everyone like, well, we're really just going to be a bar that happens to have some barbecue, you know, which was a complete lie, but it, it got me through it. But I definitely woke up many a morning uh, back then in a bit of a panic state thinking, what the hell am I doing? I don't have a clue as to what I'm doing. How can I be doing this? Um, and wound up having to get some partners involved, some friends, two friends of mine who put up some money. Uh, which actually made me more anxious because well, I, I had no problem losing my own money. I didn't want to lose somebody else's money, though. Um, but uh, a couple of things that happened, I think, you know, while I was working bartending and opening this place up and my kind of head down doing the work, um, the internet blogosphere kind of blew up and the food blogs and all that stuff had kind of blown up. Um, and based on nothing more than a blurb by Florence Fabricant in the New York Times saying that um, Joe Carroll, who owns Spite and Dival, is opening a barbecue place. The first night we opened, we sold out of everything. There was a line out the door and we sold out of everything by eight o'clock at night. Wow. Um, so we realized like, oh, okay. <laughs> Take it a little more seriously. <laughs> were, were you the head chef initially? No, uh, I knew I knew I was never going to be working there as uh, in that capacity. So I went to find there was a, a regular who came into the bar all the time who was a cook at Pearl Oyster Bar, and he was young. He was twenty three or four, and he was from Baltimore. And I trained him over the course of the I don't know ten months or whatever prior to opening, um, how I wanted the barbecue done and how to do it and all. And he was great. He was a great hire at the time because he was young in the first few weeks or months that we were open um it needed a lot of attention he was he would sleep there on the table some nights you know to do things like brisket and pork shoulder take like I said anywhere between 14 18 hours so it's uh it's you know quite the process so he would spend many a night there until we got everything the way we wanted it you know dialed in that's incredible. I actually, when I lived in New York City, went to Fetzau, and that was probably 2014, and there was still a line down the block. I think I waited for like 45 minutes to get wow. in. Then I got the tray, and I, my, oh my God, I was like, I'll have a half pound of the brisket, and then just went down the line. By the time I sat down at the table, my friends yeah, were like, like, are you 10 kidding? pounds of meat. <laughs> 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 I remember getting it of like eating pretty much all of it, so it was, 
I don't think I had had barbecue in the couple years that at that point that I had lived in New York. So of course, right. um, when I heard about it, we went there immediately. Being from Virginia, barbecue is right. huge. So sure, it was sure. awesome. Yeah, it was a great yeah. experience. It was super cool. Awesome. So, it was good to hear. Now you've expanded to other cities too. So how do yeah. you manage, you know, cross state? How do you even operate, man, like approach that or... You know, so I'm very lucky. Um, I have an incredible partner who is uh, much bigger, much more successful than I am, um, who I initially did another Fete de Sao in Philadelphia with. And uh, a little over a year ago, about a year and a half ago, we opened um, St. Anselm, which is kind of my steakhouse-ish place in D.C. Uh, together. So he operates it for me. So I don't, uh, I don't have to worry about the operation of it. Um, I have ownership and I am responsible. I was responsible for the execution of the place to, to open it. Um, but after that, they sort of take the reins over and, and operate. It's really more his employees running it than they are mine. I mean, I, they work for me technically because I'm an owner, but they're the operating partners. Gotcha. So like a dream team. It's That's pretty great. It's, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine doing it another way, honestly. Um, it just allows me to, to really not worry about the details. It also allowed me to not have to take my best people from New York and move them other places and, and remove them from where I need them in New York. Yeah. Cause you're still operating in New York. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let's go back to Feta Sal's, your, your restaurant, you're operating it. Talk about a typical day for you uh, back then. You know, so I, I'm relatively hands off. I mean, my approach has always been fine people I work with best, find the people I know who can execute my vision, find the people I know who will do a good job and, and really uh, empower them to do that. Um, so, you know, obviously the first few weeks, anytime I open a new place, it's much more intense for me. I'm, I need to be there a lot and I need to be on top of it. But once things get up and running, uh, I, you know, honestly, I can go weeks without popping my head into Fet Sal, oh, wow. uh, which is funny because I could often be next door, across the street rather at my other places all the time and not go into Feta. Oh, um, wow. Mostly because I, I hate coming out and stinging like smoke for the rest of the day. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, it really at this point, um, I just manage my top four people um, and they really do the rest. Uh, and I'm more focused on, you know, new ventures, opening new places. And, and my normal day to day is very, easy uh unless i'm opening a new place and then it's non-stop then i'm full on you know every moment from the time i get up to the time i go to bed like entrenched in that world which i love though that to me is the best of it um the the creation and execution of a new restaurant is if i could just do that i would be so happy um once they're open I'm sort of not interested anymore. <laughs> I mean, not that I'm not, but it's, it's much less exciting, much less interesting. Right, right. Well, I, your, your trend has been uh, going south, opening restaurants. Uh, Richmond's just south of D.C. <laughs> yeah, I think you should put that next on your list. <laughs> that is true. Uh, such a huge part of your restaurants are the concepts. How do you find inspiration for these concepts? Is it like traveling? You mentioned... Um, for it's everything. I mean, I... I I'm a great lover of American culture and history. So I, I really gravitate towards any sort of cultural uh, sort of phenomenon that, that we've had in this country 
food-wise or, or sometimes outside of food, but obviously because I'm in the food business, that's the more important thing to me. Um, and I, I'm just a great lover of Americana and, and all of that stuff. Uh, I'm also, you know, a fairly creative person. So I, to me, that's the, what gets me excited and gets my juices going. And that's what, you know, I, once I get an idea, man, I can, you know, sit and just sink my teeth into that and really flesh it out. And um, I'll, so I'll draw inspiration from anywhere and everything I possibly can, you know, no holds barred. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's based directly on something I may have seen or experienced. And other times it's, you know, some weird amalgam of different ideas that I've put together and, you know, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, you know, it's sometimes though, I'll be honest with you. And this is maybe a weird thing to hear someone say, but, uh, I am often just as happy to, to do a new place that fails as I am to do one that succeeds because it's, like I said, it's, it's the doing it that is exciting to me. Um, so I've had a handful of failures and, you know, I'm not happy that they failed, but I was happy to have been able to at least execute that project or that idea and see it come to life. Yeah. You know, that and that, awesome. Yeah. So that, that to me is, is great and exciting. And I've, I've actually probably left a fair amount of money on the table over the years by not following the money, but just following my creative instinct and, and what was going to make me happy instead of what was going to make me richer. Um, I, probably should have opened many more Fete de Sows shortly after we opened the original one. But to me, that wasn't interested. It was boring. I just did that. Why do I want to do it again? You know, I want to do something else I haven't done. Um, so I didn't. And, you know, I, I, I probably didn't make a lot of money that I could have had I done that. But so be it. You know, that's the way it goes. And you know, what wound up happening is lots of other people opened up other versions of Fet de Sal. Yeah. So. <laughs> Does that goes. bother you or are you no. honored by that? I mean, no. I, yeah, I think if anything, I, I, I think it's pretty great. I think it's cool. I mean. Flattering. I, I, you know, I don't like, to, I don't ever, I rarely look at myself that I've had much impact on anything. But I think that's one of these weird things that I, I you know, I mean, I, I jokingly call it hipster barbecue, but. Um, it's sort of this phenomenon that has happened in the last decade or so, um, across the country and into Europe now in, in great ways in Europe, in many countries in Europe, um, where there is this new kind of movement of barbecue, uh, that in, for a while was happening more in the North than the South. Now it's happening just as much in the South. Um, but a very different approach to it, um, you know, I love the old barbecue places, but if we're being honest, a lot of them, uh, you know, made their desserts and their sides at the, out of boxes or it was purchased in some way. And they weren't, you know, they weren't really paying attention to the details beyond the smoking of the meat. Um, and they really honestly weren't paying much attention or giving any care to the meat itself that they were smoking, where it was coming from, being sourced, how it was raised, any of that stuff. And I think if anything, that was that was what we brought to the table and we were really the first to have done that in using heritage breed animals, using uh, animals that were raised with no antibiotics, hormones or steroids, uh, trying to support small family farms whenever possible. Um, you know, making everything from scratch. Blue smoke was probably the first as far as making the sides and stuff more serious. But the problem I was out with blue smoke, although I thought they did a great job with the food was the, 
environment, the atmosphere. It was weird to be in the place with white tablecloths and eat barbecue and a big yeah. menu. I, I always, I also come from this belief that great barbecue is served by itself and not with hamburgers and French fries and chicken fingers and tons of other stuff like that. It's like a barbecue place serves barbecue, period. Um, and you do something and you do it well and that's all you do. Um, I also don't think in my view of barbecue that sides should play as big of a role as sometimes they play. Um, I think they should just be a supporting role. And uh, I generally like my barbecue sides to be really crisp and bright and acidic to kind of cut through the richness of the barbecue. I never got doing like mac and cheese with barbecue. To me, that was just like fat on fat, you know, richness on richness. Never quite made sense to me. Um, so, you know, we've definitely had a bit of an impact on, on that whole world. I don't, you know, there are at least half a dozen barbecue places in London. And I don't know that that would have existed if we didn't do what we did, how we did it, when we did it, all that kind of stuff. Now, somebody else probably would have come along and done it anyway. It's not that I think I had some inside track to it, but we just got there before some others. That's all. Um, so, Joe, a, uh, a vegan walks into Fetisau. Right. What, what do they eat? Uh, pickles, sauerkraut, broccoli, uh, potato salad. I'm asking. Right. I, I'm, I'm asking because Dan, I don't know if you saw his <laughs> his chin go up in the air laughing. Uh, Daniel's a vegan. Gotcha. Yes, sir. Well, I got to tell you, especially early on when I was there more often, um, it was not uncommon for people to stop me uh, while they were there eating and telling me that they had been vegan or vegetarian for X amount of years, and this was the first meat they had eaten in you know a decade or five years or whatever it was, and you know how much they loved it. Dan, um, Daniel and I are coming to Fetisau in Brooklyn and we're going to, he's going to have meat for the first time in years. Yeah. If I were ever to, you know, give up the vegan lifestyle, I think I would do it in a manner like that at a place. Well, like that. There you go. Nice. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not sure what made you become vegan, but certainly the, the provenance of the meat we carry, uh, you know, should help quell some fears if, if that's part of it. So, you know, the, the, the meat we serve at all my places is, you know, very strict protocol. Um, and we, we will never veer off that. We, we actually were asked to do concession at uh, the Barclay Center, uh, you know, where the Nets play. And uh, that was a very interesting process because I got to really learn why, you know, a hamburger costs $17 when you're at a baseball game. Um, but at the end, we couldn't make it work because the meat we purchase is simply more expensive than commodity meat. And the sandwich, like if we were to do a pulled pork sandwich, it was going to be like, honestly, like $22 or something. And uh, they said, look, we, we just can't do this. Can you use commodity meat? Then we'll get it down to a reasonable price. And absolutely not. Yeah. No way. You know? So what, at what point did you make that decision? Um, cause, cause that's a tough decision to make. Cause if you follow the money, it, it would make, you know, more financial sense to just use commodity meats. Yeah, I, it, it, honestly, it's it came down to this. Um, I don't want to eat commodity meat, so I would never serve someone else commodity meat. Um, it's that simple. Um, I, I I struggle enough with the impact that cattle, in particular, are having on the environment. Um, so to support a factory farm where it's really at its worst would just be the the worst thing I could do. Um, and, you know, I think it's uh, the flip side to that is how great it feels to support a, a small family farm, um, right. you know, 
And so we deal with a lot of times, um, you know, it seems odd to, for a restaurant, especially a restaurant that goes through, a, a, you know, quite a bit of product uh, to purchase from these small family farms. But usually the way it works is uh, kind of comes through like a, a broker who will purchase from a bunch of different farms, small farms, and then sell it that way. Uh, so I'll deal with some farms that might have 300 heads of cattle, and I'll deal with some farms that have six heads of cattle. Um, that tiny, you know? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Daniel, uh, do you want to keep going on the vegan thing? Well, I'll just say, um, <laughs> yeah, I think the, the main reason, there are a lot of reasons that, that I went vegan, I'm still vegan. Um, and, and one of the main ones is, is like the place to where we've gotten with factory farming and the way that uh, it, its effect on the environment, its effect on people's health, its effect on yeah. the animals. No and so it's easier for me to think black and white, um, which is why I just decided I'm just going to sure. go full on vegan. And I've been healthier and happier for it. Uh, but I do think that like the only path ahead lies in a return to like small scale distributed uh, small farms like the ones that you patronize. So I think it's very yeah. cool. In the short term, I think that is absolutely the, the way to go. In the long term, um, and I don't know how people feel about this at the moment, my guess is not terribly great, but I think we'll, we'll all get over it. But in the long term, I think um, lab-grown meat is where we're headed. Laboratory-produced meat. Interesting. Um, very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, I Look, there's no way we're getting the planet to become vegetarian, let alone vegan. Uh, it's simply not going to happen. So, and we're not programmed. We're, we're omnivores. We're pro Look, the reason why we're humans is because we not just ate meat, but we, we cooked meat. Um, but it, so it plays a very important part of our development as, as humans, our brain development, all of that, right? Um, it, it's programmed in us to, to love and appreciate meat. Uh, you're not going to get the world off of me. However, we can't continue down the path we've been going down with these factory farms and producing cattle. I mean, it's so intense to, you know, just to produce meat from one head of cattle, the, the energy that has to go into that is it's terrible. Um, so really the only way around that is to not have cattle uh, and still have meat. And doing it in the lab is the only way we can make that happen. It's, it's happening already. Uh, it's not widely available by any means. Um, there's a company in California that's doing it with tuna at the moment that are selling to just a very few select sushi restaurants. Um, at a molecular level, there's zero difference between a steak grown in a lab and a steak grown on a cow. Um, so, you know, when you eat it, I don't think there's any way of knowing one way or the other where it came from. I think mentally it's a little weird for people, but I think, you know, we're a very adaptive species. We'll get over that. You know, have, have you had, have you ever tried lab produced meat? I have not. No. Um, I will say I'm, I'm incredibly pleased at these new burgers and, and the, you know, the new kind of vegetarian meat that's been produced by beyond meat and, you know, the, all that stuff. Um, by far the best shot at making fake meat that we've had so far no question uh it's amazing how close they've come but a couple of problems with that right one is it's fine when we're doing burgers but if you want a t-bone steak 
how is that going to work? Right. And the other is, um, nutritionally speaking, it's actually worse for you than eating an, an actual burger. So that's not really helping much, right? Right. Um, so that's kind of the bummer about it. Um, so that's why I think at the end of the day, we still have, we still have to have meat, um, actual meat. But the only way to do it without having that impact on the environment is to, is to grow in the laboratory. Um, we do it actually, again, it's, it, it's in infancy stages, but we do it for uh, human organs. And basically, you're just, you're just getting the, the lattice of whatever it is. If you wanted to grow a human heart, you basically wash off everything but the, the protein lattice that, that you can grow the, the meat on. And then just slowly over time, you grow those, those cells, those protein cells. Um, it's kind of fascinating. Oh, it's tremendously fascinating because I had yeah. no idea that was even a thing. No, me neither. You're blowing my yeah. mind right now. <laughs> yeah, pretty incredible. Imagine where we'll be 20, 30 years from now. Yeah. What the state of and the Look, if we can produce the meat that we produce, or at least most of the meat we produce now that way, think about the positive effect that will have on the environment. So, yeah, amazing effect. Yeah. yeah. Huge. All right. So there's no way to uh, easily transition to this. We ask a question of most of our guests uh, in every episode. And uh, since we haven't heard a lot from Daniel, I'd love for Daniel to tee it up. Sure. Um, so the question is, as a 25 year old, if you went back to that point in your life and, and you didn't have any responsibilities, would you rather have gone into the military or made a stab at becoming a full-time stand-up comedian? No question I would have made a stab at becoming a full-time stand-up comedian. Which, <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, I can see that too. Scared, scared the shit out of me, but not as much as being in the military. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. There's not a lot of guests who say that. Mostly everybody goes to, says military. Really? So yeah, you're one of no, them. No, I, I would rather you amputate both my thumbs than me going into the military. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a very strong stance. That's the strongest answer we've gotten, yeah. yeah. yeah it, it, it might not that I have anything against the military. I'm all for the military. I'm just not for me personally. Right, right, right. No, I, I get it. <laughs> one of the differences for some people, and they don't say this, maybe you can join the military and you don't really have to think that much. You, you, if you're a comedian, you're thinking all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you have to set yourself up for pretty, you know, embarrassing failure pretty often. And it's the you do. There's no question. You have to you have to be okay with failure, and, and you have to have a thick skin. I think I have a pretty thick skin. I think I think growing up in Dumont contributed to that thick skin. <laughs> um, and I, I'm okay with failure. I think. Uh, look, that said, I, I think having success prior to failure helps. Um, I think it's it, it's a lot easier to get through the failure when you know you've been successful uh, in the past, but. I feel like in anything you do, if you can't be okay with failing sometimes, you're going you're gonna to struggle. You're going to have a hard time. There's, you're never always going to be perfect. It's impossible. Um, no matter what you are or what you do, um, you're going you're gonna to fail. And you got to yeah. be okay with that. You know? And I have. I've had plenty of places that opened and did not succeed. And you know, I, I realized I could have had a couple of extra vacation homes for the money that I lost. but um, so be it. I mean, nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? Right. That's right. Yeah. What, what's your uh, gr best lesson you learned from failing? Well, I don't know that it's, it's a overarching lesson. I think it's lots. I think that you always learn more from failure than from success. Um, and so I had mentioned earlier that 
I never worked in the bar or restaurant business. Not completely true. My, my only experience ever was um, for about four months in 1999. Uh, I was in between a couple of jobs in the music business, and I saw that this restaurant called Belgo was opening up on Lafayette Street, just a few blocks away from where I lived. And I knew Belgo because they had first opened up in Covent Garden in London. And they were a Belgian restaurant that served um, tons of great Belgian beers. And it was but a very modern kind of setting and you know, uh, aesthetically great look and feel to it. So I saw they were opening there. And I knew a ton about beer, but I knew nothing about the, the business, uh, certainly the restaurant business. And I went in and asked for a job and said to the manager, I don't know a thing about bartending, but I know a lot about beer. She gave me a little bit of a beer quiz and realized right away that I did know a lot about beer. And she said, look, perfect. We could use someone like you. We have a lot of very experienced bartenders, but none of them know anything about beer. <laughs> so that was my, my experience. My only experience in the business prior to opening my own place was bartending for this place for three months. Uh, what made it so good is that they screwed everything up. They made all the wrong decisions. Mm -hmm. Now they were from out of town. They were from the UK, first of all, not even American. They came into New York with all this bravado because they had been very successful in London. And um, I think they had a couple of, like two places in London at the time, and I think a place in Dublin by the time they came to New York. And really just came with, you know, guns blazing, thought they were just going to take over the town, you know, and New York had other ideas. Um, they were fairly successful for, you know, a first month or so. And, you know, and the PR machine was in full swing. Uh, but it, it died off quickly. The restaurant actually only lasted about 18 months. Mm. But in the four months I was there, I learned so much uh, about what not to do in the, in the business. And that, that helped me more than had I, had I worked there and they'd done everything right, I wouldn't have known what those things were that they were doing right. I wouldn't have been able to know the detail of it the same way. Then when it went wrong, I could see exactly where it went wrong, you know, and why. Um, so that helped a lot. But so I, I do believe that, you know, failure in many ways can lead to success because you learn the right lessons. Um, and so it's never one, at least for me, it wasn't one specific thing. It was always little details here and there, you know, that you just don't make those same mistakes again. True. Great point. So uh, what's it been like the last couple of months being in Brooklyn? Uh, just very macro uh, perspective, not, not a feta sour or, or you perspective, right. but just in general. Uh, it's been weird, obviously, as I'm sure it's been everywhere. You know, I think the toughest thing for all of this, through all of this, I should say, is uh, just not knowing what two weeks from now is going to look like or two months from now is going to look like. And we didn't know that back in March, and I, we still don't know that. You know, and that's, that's been the struggle in this, is not being able to think ahead and plan things. And, and um, in business, when you try to set some sort of strategy, you, you want to know what you're working with. What, what are the rules here? So, you know, we know in the coming weeks, um, we're going to be able to open up more and more, but we don't know what that looks like and what the rules are to open up. You know, so it's hard for us to, to sort of plan ahead and, and forecast anything. Um, it's definitely been strange. We've been lucky. We've been doing fairly well through all of this. Um, you know, but like all of us, what, what can we do? We sit back, we, you know, bide the time and hope it passes and hope we, we get out on the other end. Okay. You know, 
I'm really glad business is doing okay for you guys up there. I, I, I assume from afar that uh, things had slowed down to well, basically a, a screeching halt. I mean, they nearly had, you know, certainly the first few days when everything happened, everyone was just, you know, kind of scrambling and trying to figure out what was up. And we didn't know what to do, how to do it. We had always done or mostly done delivery and, and takeout at Feta Sal, never at San Anselm, but just, you know, look, steak doesn't really show itself best being delivered, especially when you're spending a couple hundred dollars on a giant, you know, 64 ounce ribeye. Um, so we, you know, to do delivery there was never an option for, we never wanted to do delivery there. Plus we were always, we, it's a small place. We were always so busy. We just didn't have the bandwidth to do it. Um, but obviously when this happened, we had to rethink things and it took about a week to get set up and get set up with all the delivery apps and all that stuff. But uh, it's been okay. We've been doing pretty good delivery and takeout at, at both places. Uh, my bar at Spite and Dival, the, the beer bar has been closed. We just opened this past week for the first time since the shutdown um just to do what's happening now is i'm sure it's happening in other places you know people are coming up and buying stuff at the door of the window and then standing basically standing out on the street corner having a drink that's um, great <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah and the younger you know the younger that sort of demographic skews the more people are doing it so you know the bars that cater to 23 24 year olds they're doing fairly decently um but we've we've been okay uh I wasn't paying my full rent to my landlords initially. I was just giving a, a portion of what we thought we could, you know, I wanted to give them something, but we weren't paying them everything. Once we got our PPP from the government, that took care of that. So I was able to make them whole again. Going forward, I'm not sure how it's going to look rent wise with these guys. I think we're, we're going to have to make some concessions. Um, we're clearly not going to be able to do our full business for probably a good handful of months. Uh, and who knows if this thing kicks back up again. I mean, uh, that's the problem, as I stated. Like, we just don't know. We don't know if a month from now things are going to be fairly normal again, or if a month from now we're going to wind up being all stuck back home. Right. You know? Yeah. The uncertainty of it all. Yeah. Yeah. That it's it's so strange because I'll hear all these. You know, you watch the news and it's very sensational, and you're hearing about all these deaths and cases. But then I'll go to the grocery store and I'll have my mask on, of course. But there's more people there than there usually is. And right. I feel, or like mm -hmm. I am, um, there's this hole in the wall Thai place that I, I'm obsessed with near my house. And anytime before all this happened, we'd go in there, there's maybe one other table besides sure. us in the restaurant. And then once um, this all happened, we got, they were doing takeout. So I went to go pick it up and they just had hundreds of bags of takeout behind there. Sure. They had, took like 20 minutes to find which one was mine. So I'm sure. thinking it's so strange how it affects certain things. And they didn't do takeout before. So I'm wondering if going sure. forward, they're like, well, we learned that we do fantastic business takeout, whereas we had sure. two tables on any given Saturday before. Mm. Yeah. Do you have a decent idea? Or it sounds like you, you probably don't, but do you have an idea what the world will look like a year from now for your restaurants? No idea, uh, but like I said, based mostly on, we just don't know how this is gonna play out with the virus, right? Yeah. Or the government for that matter. Um, but I, I don't know, I'm not, I don't think, as some people do, that this is gonna change how we live forever in many ways. I, I, I think that everyone wants to get back to normal, there's no question. No matter where you're from, what you do, everyone wants normalcy again we're social creatures. So I think that's what's killing all of us the most is just not being able to be social with our friends and family and everyone just going out and doing what we do. Right. Um, 
And it really seems like at, at a, roughly the two month mark, most people were, no matter how they felt, how freaked out they were about the virus or how much they thought it might've been a hoax, everyone at about two months was like, all right, I'm done. I need to, I need to see people, I need to go out, I need to live <laughs> yeah. my, you know. And it's true, I get it, you know. It's, for better or worse, it's, there's, there's almost no way around it. We're just, it's in our nature. Um, I, I don't know how it's going to look in a year. I do believe that as long as we don't really break the economy globally, um, you know, meaning that like this doesn't kick back up again and everyone's got to go back in for another bunch of months, the summer economy gets destroyed. Like, you know, we're, we're certainly teetering on the, with, with the economy here. Things could get very ugly if this lasts a lot longer. Um, as long as that doesn't happen, I think things will come back very quickly because everyone wants it to. I think there's going to be a certain percentage of the population that really got their ass kicked in this, and there's going to be no way around that. Uh, and that's unfortunate, but that's just how things go. Um, and it's a shame, but you know, if it wasn't this, it was probably going to be something else. Um, that said, most people, uh, regardless of their income, want to get back out and spend money and do things and go to restaurants and go to bars and go to movies and do all that stuff. So I, I think the recovery should be relatively quick. Um, I, I see it. Look, we decided to start selling some of those big ax handle ribeyes that we do that range anywhere from on the low end in the 30, 32 ounces on the high end up to like 84 ounces, let's say, wow. um, you know, we sell them. We, we actually lowered the price a little bit for $3 an ounce. So you can quickly do the math and realize these are not inexpensive cuts of meat. These are very expensive. Um, we decided to do one case. It's uh, on about eight steaks. And we sold out immediately. People coming, picking them up, and taking them home. Now, how long will that last for? How long are people going to spend money on expensive steak that they got to bring home and eat and all that? I don't know. But um, but people want to spend money. People want to get out there. They want to do things. There's no question about it. Very cool. Well, uh, Joe, I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, you immediately had no problem and uh, really great talking to you. Really good hearing your story and uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io, and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly. Thanks for listening.